Hey guys, uh, hope everybody's well, staying warm when it's getting cold here. Uh, so we have a test on Thursday, the 19th. It's on Congress and the Judiciary, Congress and the Courts, Congress and the, the Federal Courts. There's any number of ways to say the, the Judiciary Branch, but uh, that's what we're, where we're at. So the test is uh, about 30 questions or so. There is no FRQ. If you're looking at that study guide that's on E-Class, I forgot to take that thing off. So I apologize for that. Um, but we'll go through uh, this whole thing and uh, hopefully get you ready for the, the test. All right. So if you want to have it out or just listen, whatever you want to do. So the first thing is about congressional caucuses and congressional caucuses. You need to remember are just those groups that are within the different parties. So you've got the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. In, in Congress and within those groups, so within the Republican group, within the Democratic groups, you have small subsets and it can be based on any number of things, uh, race, religion, sex, um, geographic region, uh, business interests, uh, interest group interests, what, whatever it might be, whoever you're associated with. So you can, you can be a part of multiple, you know, uh, it doesn't just have, well, uh, I'm from the South. I got to be a part of the Southern caucus and that's it. Okay. Uh, you can be a part of any number of them. And, and what's going to happen in these congressional caucuses is that you're generally going to be with people that align with your viewpoints as well. So, you know, if you're in the same caucus as somebody, uh, you're probably going to probably think along their lines also ideolo ideologically. And so if a bill comes out, y'all are going to sit down and talk about it. And maybe, you know, well, you know, we as this group, we don't like this thing. So we're going to throw our weight around a little bit and we're going to tell the our party that we're not going to vote for that or that we do want this. And we're going to vote for it. and We're going to push and fight and, and, and try and get it done. So it is just some of the it's it's a subset within the parties. And then, you know, depending on how large they are, if there's two of you, you know, on the House, you're not going to be able to do much. But if there's, you know, 140 of you in the House. Uh, all from a certain region or a certain uh, demographic or whatever it might be, then you have some, some weight to throw around. Now, hopefully that makes sense to you. All right, casework. We said this is just the congressman doing work. You have the personal casework where they're going to help you out, me and you as individuals. So we call up and, you know, in order to go to the White House, you have to go through your House member. So you send in a little form uh, to them and then they send it to the White House and make the request for you and all that kind of stuff. That, that's the casework. Write a letter. Like I told you all in class, um, write a letter for uh, students to get in and help get them into the Naval Academy, things like that. So that that's all casework. So basically where they're doing work uh, to help out some, some of their constituents. They like to do casework because it gives them something to point to and say, hey, Look, I, I just helped these people get into school. I, I, I did this for that person over there. I got that problem with the, the IRS solved for them, so on and so forth. All right, next up is pork barrel legislation. This is pretty simple. This is just kind of projects that congressmen uh, get done that really only benefits their district or their state. All right. Uh, typically, it deals with getting money for a project or you know, just the project itself being put into their district, into their state, which is going to bring jobs and money and other resources uh, to their state or district is, 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 is could be considered pork barrel as well. So anything that really only benefits their area, their state is going to be could be considered pork barrel. And it's important for, for congressmen because it's once again a credit claiming thing. It allows them to point and say, look, I got this done. OK, <clears throat> the House Rules Committee. Uh, this is the most important committee in all of Congress. Uh, it is only on the House side, though, so be sure 
you understand that there is no Senate Rules Committee. There is only a House Rules Committee. And this is the committee for the committees kind of sort of. Alrighty. So every bill that goes to the House is going to be introduced, H.R. 1, and then H.R. 1 is going to be assigned to one of the standing committees that's out there, whatever it might be. All right. The standing committee is then going to work on the bill. They're going to mark it up, do all that kind of stuff. They're going to vote on it and they're going to send it to the full floor for debate and vote. Before it gets to the full full floor for debate and vote, it goes to the rules committee. The rules committee gives it a once over. All right. And they're the ones that are then going to set all the rules for it. That's why they're the rules committee. They get to set the 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 um, time that it goes on the agenda. When's it going to be discussed? How much time is going to be spent talking about it? Who gets to talk about it? Uh, is it going to be open or closed? Remember, can we add amendments to it on the House floor or can we not? All those things happen at the Rules Committee or on the Rules Committee. So they're going to set this, this debate, uh, this agenda for the bill. So they can play a big role in getting something passed or not passed. If they don't give it much time or if they make sure that it's an open thing because they know Someone is going to throw something that's going to kill it uh, onto it. They, they have all kinds of resources and all kinds of options uh, to do. So it's a very important committee. If you want to be you know, kind of a powerful congressman, it, you want to be on the House Committee, House Rules Committee, because they play a huge role. All right, the House and the Senate differences. Uh, there's a list on one of the PowerPoints. I'm not going to, I don't think I have time to go through every single difference. Just the, the big main ones, and I, I'm pretty sure this is a question where you have the, the House on one side, the Senate on the other, and you have to match up the the, the where they're where they're at but just remember the house <clears throat> is very rule oriented so it, it has to be because of the 435 right there's no way to get 435 people together and have solid discussions and do anything constructive with that many people so they limit the bait okay uh you're limited to about an hour for debate on an issue uh the senate on the other hand remember they don't have as many rules this is where you can filibuster they have unlimited debate um, you know, you've got 100 members here, so it's much easier to have kind of, some kind of discussions about items and not be so regimented as you are on the House side. Uh, you know, 100 versus 435, based on population versus equality, you know, all those things are differences between the House and the Senate. All right, filibustering and cloture. So we just mentioned the filibuster. So filibustering, this is a tool for the minority and it's only on the Senate side. Okay, because the House has all their rules, because they limit debate, there's really no way that the, the House can filibuster because they're set. Hey, we're going to debate this long and that's it. So what is a filibuster? Well, oftentimes you'll hear it referred to as, hey, we're trying to talk a bill to death. And that's kind of true. But you really got to understand that, that you don't really kill a bill through filibustering. I mean, you can if you can if it if it works out that way. But the main goal of a filibuster is to basically delay and hold up the Senate as long as you can, because you got to remember, the Senate has thousands of bills they need to get to. And if they don't get to them by the end of the session, then the, those bills die. So if I'm sitting here talking about my bill or I, it wouldn't be my bill, let's say someone's trying to filibuster on my bill that I've just that I've submitted and they spend eight days. You know, that's kind of extreme, but they spend a, a good deal of time on these things. Does that leave time for all the other stuff we got to get done? No, something's going to get bumped. And so the goal of a filibuster is to eventually make the majority party cave and say, OK, look, we've really got other stuff we want to get to. What changes can we make? Or maybe they completely walk away. I guess it just depends on how, how strongly they feel about the bill. 
but you, you're not going to actually kill it most of the time. It's more of a delay tactic. It's more of a, more to try and you know stop the the majority party from getting something to push through. Now the cloture is how you end the filibuster, and the cloture is just a motion to end debate. So I'm up here filibustering. You make a cloture motion. If 60, 60 senators say, hey, yeah, we want to stop debate unless just vote on the issue without debate, then your filibuster is over. So if you know I'm the majority party and I have 60 votes, which I would know because I'm the majority leader and I have my uh, assistants and I have my, the whips who have gone around and talked to all these people. And they know they know that, hey, we have 60. So when this person gets ready to start filibustering, let's just make a closure motion. And so I get up there and I say, hey, my name is Chris. Uh, excuse me, I'd like to make a motion to cloture. I didn't get to talk, but they knew I was going to filibuster, and so they, you know, they can get they can end me pretty quickly. So having 60 is important. It's a super majority. I don't know that we'll have it anytime soon. Um, I can't, I can't, I can't even remember the last time we had a super majority in the Senate. Uh, it's been a while, okay, but it is a big deal. All right, role of the speaker and their responsibility. So the speaker is the most important and powerful position in all of Congress, probably. Um, I shouldn't say most important. They're the, at least the most powerful, okay, because they get to run the House. Um, remember, there's no Speaker of the Senate, so don't get that messed up. There is the majority leader, but they're supposed to work with the minority leader. They don't have the, the unilateral, unilateral power that the, the Speaker does. The Speaker can go off and do what they want to. The minority party on the House is really one of the weakest positions you can be in because you really don't have any options. On the Senate, at least you can filibuster and do some things to, to slow down some things. But as the Speaker of the House, you can really drive through the legislation that you want to. So as the Speaker, uh, you know, you're going to set the agenda. You're going to work with the Rules Committee on set the agenda. You're going to put people on committees. You're going to make people chair people. OK, uh, so you have this all this power and this ability. You're the spokesman for the House. You're the face of the House. So uh, you have just a lot of uh, a lot of power. Okay. Uh, I imagine Nancy Pelosi will probably be the next speaker. I mean, she's the speaker now. I shouldn't say next. She'll be the, she'll continue to be the speaker. Uh, I know there are some people that want to be speaker, but I don't think the, the Democrats will go against Nancy Pelosi this go round. So they'll have a vote probably early January to decide who the new, who, who the new speaker is. And I imagine it'll be Nancy Pelosi. All right. Majority leader role and responsibilities. So the majority leader, there's majority leaders on both the house and the Senate side. Uh, the House is not as powerful because they defer to the Speaker, right? They're kind of the right-hand person for the Speaker versus the Senate, where the majority leader is really the person, okay? They're supposed to work with the minority leader, although they don't do it as often, but the majority leader on the Senate side is going to drive uh, the agenda over there. Uh, and, you know, if there's a tie, if there's a 50-50 tie coming up, there's not really going to be a majority leader. So it'd be just, you know, the majority minority leaders working together. Uh, to set the agenda. But right now, Mitch McConnell gets to do that. He sets the agenda. This is why, you know, um, I'm not sure what to think of Amy Coney Barrett just yet, but um, I know Democrats didn't want to to confirm her, okay, and they didn't want this pushed through, but Mitch McConnell went ahead and, and kind of ran it through the Senate. So, you know, th there's that option. All right, number nine, the four types of committees. It is a matching question on the test. So you've got standing committees. These are the permanent committees. They are going to last from session to session, and they will be the ones that get every piece of legislation. Okay, so standing committees, they get every type of legislation uh, that is out there, and um, they do the work. Okay, uh, they're the ones that are going to be researching all these bills. 
Uh, they're experts in their areas. They can make changes and additions and things like that that make sense. Uh, so, you know, that's <clears throat> and they're, the, the committees are important. You want to be on the right committee. If you're a House member, if you're a Senate member, you want to be on the right committee. Now, the House, you really can drill down and become an expert because you're only going to be on like two or three committees. On the Senate side, though, where there's less people, but just about just as many committees, you're going to be on more committees. So you can't really become the expert that you are on the House side, although you're not there as long on the House side because you only get two year terms. Uh, the next one is the select committees. These are the non-permanent committees. OK, and they stay separate. So there is no uh, select committee for Congress. It's the House Select Committee. It is the Senate Select Committee. They are non-permanent, but they can last from session to session. So, you know, if there's an issue that's being investigated, they're typically investigated, the investigatory uh, committees. So if it lasts from session to session, they can last and hold over. All right. So it's not something that has to go away, but they're not going to be permanent. They're going to do that kind of investigative investigative thing. I'm having trouble speaking today. Uh, like there was a Watergate Select Committee. There was a campaign finance uh, reform committee, select committee, where they did an investigation and reported their findings. The next one is the joint committee. Uh, this is where they're going to present some kind of evidence. The best example is the 9-11 when the House and the Senate will come together in the joint committees. They're not permanent and they'll put out some information, basically. And then finally is the conference committee. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but remember, bills have to pass on both sides. So if it starts in the House side, once it passes the House, it goes to the Senate. The Senate gets to pass their version of it. They have to be the same before they go to the president. So if they're different, the conference committee will come together, work out the differences, and then go their separate ways. All right, what happens in committees and subcommittees? Two things. First off is oversight, and secondly is legislative uh, work. Legislative work is probably where they spend most of their time, uh, and this is where they're going to be researching a bill, uh, marking it up, making changes to it, voting on it. All right, um, just this is the work, okay? And, and the subcommittee, if, if it's a busy committee, they will break up the, the work in the, in the subcommittees. So, hey, here's House Bill number two. Uh, it's going to this committee, but we have uh, 18 bills coming down the pipeline. Let's go ahead and break up into subcommittees and you work on this bill. We'll work on this bill and then we'll come back to report uh, when they're doing this. This is when they're going to do bring in people to talk about their bill, experts uh, to, to discuss and advise and all that kind of stuff. OK, uh, and then they vote on it. If they vote favorably, it goes to the full House or it goes to the full Senate. If they vote against it, it typically dies there. Then the other thing they do is oversight. And this is where they're going to watch over the bureaucracy. And really, you know, it could be also private companies, too. You know, Facebook got called in a long time ago or not a long time ago, but back when they were worried about the, the privacy issues, you know, Zuckerberg came in and, and got questioned. But oversight, this is where they're going to look over, watch over. Uh, the bureaucratic agencies typically and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. All right, the seniority system, uh, this is just the, the senior members of the party are going to be the chair people typically. It's not a written rule. It doesn't have to happen that way, but typically uh, that's how it will go. Constituency influence, uh, just me and you they are the constituents and we drive how our House members and Senate members are going to vote. If they vote against us consistently, we're going to vote them out eventually. All right, so they are typically, typically going to do what we want them to when it comes to voting. The ranking privilege is pretty simple. Uh, that is just the mail. The House and Senate members can mail out as much as they want to. If they want to send a letter to, a letter a day to every one of their constituents, they could. 
We've already done the differences between the House and the Senate, so I'm not going to do that again. House Ways and Means Committee, this is deals with tax and revenue. So all tax and revenue stuff has to start on the House side because the House is supposed to be closer to the people. You're more in tune because they represent less people. So the House is supposed to, to be more in tune to, to what we want as far as you know, taxes go and revenue goes and stuff like that. So everything has to start over there, and it would go to the House Ways and Means Committee. So they're going to be the revenue people. The impeachment process, remember, the House starts it. The House votes to impeach based on those three things, treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Uh, for me, the three people who haven't been who have been impeached have been impeached for political reasons more so than actual wrongdoing. Yes, they did some wrong stuff, but uh, was it really an impeachable offense? And the House decided that it was. It just so happened that each time the House was controlled by the opposing party, so that's convenient. Uh, Nixon, you know, would have been impeached, but he resigned, and he would have been a, a valid impeachment. But they started, uh, you know, simple majority over there on the House side. Uh, gets it done. Then it goes to the Senate for the trial. The Senate hears the evidence, the witnesses, and all that kind of stuff, and then they vote. It takes a two-thirds vote there to get somebody kicked out, actually. So impeachment is not being kicked out. It is just you've been charged. All right, I talked about standing committees, and I talked about conference committees uh, earlier with number nine, so I'm not going to go back over those and rehash them, okay? Uh, all right, on to the judiciary. So first up is original versus appellate jurisdiction. Original, and we're going to stick to the federal level. So the federal level has district courts, they have appellate courts and they have uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, original jurisdiction is for the district courts. They are the entry point for every single, well, I shouldn't say every single, but 99% of the cases are going to start off at the district court. There's just a couple of things the Supreme Court here first. So wherever your trial is heard for first, that is the original jurisdiction courtroom. So for us, there's 94 district courts out there. Uh, they will never hear an appeal. They will never say, hey, well, this appeal is based. No, it's always going to be, you've done this wrong. You're being charged. You're going to be going to district court. That's where your first trial will be. Appellate is your appeal. Okay. So appellate jurisdiction is just the appeal. Uh, when something happened in your, your court, I mean, in your case, that you think needs to be appealed based on the Constitution or, or whatever it might be, it's not just because I lost. Uh, you will go to the appellate. They will never hear a, a trial first. They will all, and they'll, they won't hear a real trial either. It's going to be looking at records looking at the, uh, you know, they, they will go back and look and see that person that types up everything. Uh, those records will be what they look at and base their decision off of. And then the Supreme Court has both original and appellate, but most of probably 98% of their stuff comes from appellate. The only time they hear original cases is state to state issues. So one state sues another and then uh, foreign dignitary stuff. All right. Number 21, what cases do the federal district courts hear? Uh, all kinds of stuff. All right. The, when you broken rules, a federal crime, uh, you know, if you kidnap someone and take them across uh, state borders, that becomes a federal issue. Bank robbery is a federal issue. Uh, bank uh, bankruptcies, things like that. Tax issues typically are going to go to the, the federal level uh, unless, of course, it's a state, you know, state level thing. So there's a, a couple of things there uh, that they could hear. The functions of the Supreme Court, remember, there's two things they do at the same time. They have to decide which cases to hear, and then they have to decide the cases that they heard. So they have to pick out the cases. They get to pick the cases they want to hear. So you appeal to the Supreme Court. It doesn't mean that you're going to get your case heard by the Supreme Court. They still got to look at it, review it, and decide, is this worthy of our time? Is this needed for us to look at? What goes into granting a writ? All right. Remember, there's a couple of things. The writ, first off, the writ of satoriae is that Latin word. Uh, that is just pulling a case up. So what goes into pulling a case up? 
remember, we looked at the PowerPoint and there was a couple things uh, that almost guaranteed it. All right. If a lower court overturns a, a precedent. So if some lower court here in Georgia was to try and overturn uh, Brown versus Board, that would trigger Supreme Court's going to probably hear that case. If appellate courts are split, so two to one decisions, that doesn't guarantee it, but it's pretty good likelihood that it will. If appellate courts from district di different districts are ruling different things. So if appellate court district nine rules one way and appellate court district one rules another way, then the Supreme Court's got to set that straight. And then states, if states are ruling one way versus if Georgia rules one way and California rules another, that's going to probably prompt the, the Supreme Court to want to hear. They want to have uniformity. They don't want to have, well, this section of the country is, is ruling this way and this section of the country is ruling that way. So they want to have those uniform uh, decisions. All right. But they will look at every single case that's appealed to them and they will make decisions. They'll have discussions. Remember the rule of four, which is the next thing. So I'll, I'll go into that now and then just skip the question. But that is if four of the justices want to hear a case, four of the nine, then they're going to pull it up regardless all right, of, of whatever else wants to do. Um, so there's that. Uh, federal judges, very broad thing here. Uh, just federal judges, remember, are picked by the president. Uh, Trump has been able to put quite a few justices on the Supreme Court, uh, as well as and what people kind of gloss over is the district courts. Um, so those entry point courts, a lot of judges have come from Trump's presidency, not just on the Supreme Court, which is a big deal, obviously, but also for uh, the district courts. And same deal. They all serve for life. OK, uh, they can't be fired uh, unless they have some kind of wrongdoing. So it's a it's a big deal because these people, uh, even though Trump's going to be out of office here soon, uh, these these guys will live on. OK, and be not live on, but they'll they'll be uh, in the judgeships long after Trump is gone. All right, senatorial courtesy. This is just a kind of unwritten rule that if there's an opening in a state where there is a senator from the same party as the president, the president owes them a call to ask them for names that they think should be on the, the district courts. This is not a Supreme Court thing, so it doesn't happen there. Uh, not so much either in the appellate courts because that's more of a, a huge district versus a, a state. Okay, so Georgia has three district courts here, and just so happens that Trump and David Perdue are the scene are the of the same party. So if there was an opening here in Georgia, Trump would be expected to call up Perdue and ask him, "Hey, who do you like? What's your list?" And then he typically would go off the list because you know Perdue's going to know Georgia better than than Trump would. Uh, if Trump chose not to, then maybe David Perdue is feeling kind of petty that day and he goes to the Judiciary Committee. Remember, they're the ones that have to confirm uh, and get the, the, the uh, appointments through kind of to the, the full Senate. Uh, he goes to them and says, hey, Trump didn't pick somebody from my list. I think you should. Uh, well, I don't think you should confirm them. And if they if they want to, they don't have to. OK, uh, if there's not a Senate senior, if there's not a senator from the same party, then the president doesn't have to do that. Amicus curiae briefs, pretty simple. These are just letters to the court. So whenever there's an issue uh, that goes before the court that you feel strongly about or the business that you're a part of or the interest group or whatever it might be, maybe you write a letter and it's just you explaining, hey, this is who we are. This is why we think you should rule this way on this case. All right. And it's just kind of a window for the Supreme Court into uh, what the public is feeling. Marbury versus Madison. This gives uh, the Supreme Court the right of Judicial review. Remember, this was based on the midnight judges 
Adams was busily writing judges into uh, judgeships right before he left office. Jefferson refused to honor those things. Uh, Madison was the Secretary of State and did not deliver them, so that's why he's named in the suit and Marbury sued. Well, the Supreme Court said, well, you know what, the whole Judicial Act is garbage. We're going to blow it up. And so that gave them the, the uh, judicial uh, judicial review of uh, constitutional issues, or any, any kind of policy. Okay, so Marbury versus Madison. Number 29, what does granting a writ of Satori mean? We already said this, but it's just pulling the case up to the Supreme Court. And then the basics of basis of the Supreme Court, very broad review question here. Um, so, you know, the Supreme Court, there's nine justices. That's not set in stone. There could be 13. There could be 15. There could be 21. It just you know, depends on what Congress wants to set. And so um, they're appointed for life. Their salaries cannot be reduced or raised during their tenures um, or yeah, uh, that basically Congress can't mess with their salaries, basically. OK, uh, all of this is to protect them. We don't. I mean, could you imagine someone basing their courtroom decision off of what their interest groups are, are doing? Well, if I vote this way, if I say this on that, um, I'll. I'll lose their funding or I'll lose their voting block. We don't want the judges have to worry about that. We want them to make decisions based on the constitutionality of a law. And then we have judicial activism or restraint activism. Remember, that's the judges set, trying to set policy versus restraint where they're using the, uh, the Constitution to, to drive their decision making. So, all right, guys. So there is that. The test is on E-Class. It should open up sometime Thursday morning, the 19th. As always, let me know if you have questions or concerns or uh, whatever it is you need. And I will try and help you out as best I can. All right, guys. Hope all is well. And we've only got a couple more days before Thanksgiving break. And then y'all got a nice little rest there. Uh, all right. I'll see y'all in class next time I see you. Later.